0: full of hope. I've got the urge to walk the prairie and chase the antelope. Aspen's gold on snowcath takes the elk call me away. I can't keep my mind on working on this fine September day. I've got nimrodneurosis, longbows on brain. Trad Quest
1: podcast, back at ya. What's going on, Bob?
0: Not much, buddy. How you doing?
1: Oh, man. I'm doing... Doing pretty good. could be doing better, but you know, you play stupid games and you win stupid prizes.
0: <laughs> yeah. James crashed on his bicycle yesterday and he's all gimping around. It's not good, but at least you can't didn't help. break anything, right?
1: Yeah. I didn't break anything. I can't help myself. These, these big jumps they're building on these courses and my buddies pre, pre pressuring me to, uh, send it as they say. And so, yeah, I'm feeling like a little kid again. It's awesome. But I better be careful because bow hunting is more important than that.
0: Yeah, you're an idiot. That's for sure. <laughs>
1: so you <laughs> went to a big 3D bow shoot over the weekend but couldn't shoot your bow. Yeah, you I, went a-
0: to, I went to the rock shoot up in Washington. And, uh, yeah, had a good time. Took Ava, so she got to shoot. And hung out with Andy and Heather, and uh Riley was there, and we just kind of hung out. It was fun, man. It was a little windy on Saturday, but met some cool guys and yeah, I woulda would have been nice if we had shirts and hats to sell. I could have slung some swag, but I donated one of our last ones to the raffle, and that's about all we got, but we're on it, working on it,
1: yeah, we got some new designs being made right now, and getting designed up and we're going to have some cool shirts and hats this summer for you guys so be looking forward to those
0: yep the rock shoot man it's crazy how many people show up to that thing it's out in the middle of nowhere and there is i mean there there is more people there than there was at the longbow safari we had last year i mean it's just crazy it's so interesting why so many people go to that. But, I mean, it is a good, like, the actual course is awesome. You're in the rim rocks and the sagebrush and, and you know, rolling hills. It's pretty cool. So
1: yeah, That's very cool. Yeah. I've been shooting my bow a bunch. I got a prototype or a new uh, bow from Alan in the mail. He's been making some tweaks to uh, his English model and sending me uh, different uh versions of that to try and so I've been shooting that a little bit and shooting my Super D and been out staining and dipping arrows. I got a couple dozen Sherwood shafts in the mail and getting some uh arrows built up for the summer. So yeah just getting all uh ready for this this fall. I've been talking to some biologists on the phone and been on Google Earth, just tearing that thing apart, looking at some new country and looking forward to hitting up some of these bow shoots. Uh, took Ashton to a bow shoot last weekend to a local shoot and shot some arrows and, uh, planning on, uh, which ones we're going to go to. And yeah, it's, you know, summer. It just, it comes and it flies by super fast. And the next thing you know, the bulls are bugling and, and we're chasing after them.
0: We got a few short months for us, uh, elk hunters. Time flies. It's weird for us in the spring. It's like it stops raining and you get some nice days and then all of a sudden it's like, man, it's it's time. So looking forward so, to the falls hunts and all that good stuff.
1: So we've been talking a lot of mule deer versus blacktail versus elk hunting. We only have so many days uh, to go hunt. And I'm constantly uh, juggling this. I think I'm back on mule deer, though.
0: see my my unfortunately my plans have just all reverted back to elk pretty much (laughs) we'll see but (laughs) unless i draw some tags probably be spending a month elk hunting again it's all my brother's fault but it'll be good
1: yeah well i'm gonna bring i'm gonna i'm gonna blame uh colzer and barrett for my mule deer uh hunting activities this year.
0: Yeah. We had a lot of guys messages after those screw it. I'm going day rotten. So it's
1: pretty cool. These
0: guys are awesome.
1: Definitely. Well, uh, we got the Patreon supporters have been growing. We'd like to thank you guys for supporting the podcast. And once again, it's time for another Patreon giveaway. So if you guys are not Patreon supporters, you need to get on there and sign up. You can find it, uh, on our website, At TradQuest.com And we're going to do Another awesome giveaway From uh, another awesome Traditional bow hunting company So today, Jason Over at Tough Heads Broadheads Has donated a package Of Meathead, glue-on 190 grain Super wicked sharp broadheads Let's uh, reach into that uh, bucket And see who we got, Bob
0: Well, I cheated this time I already did the random number generator and the winner is Todd Mendenhall. So Todd, thanks for supporting us. He's a longbow tier member, so thanks a lot. And for you longbow and self-bow tiers, Toughhead Broadheads is also offered a 10 and 15% discount, so I'll get that stuff up on the, I'll get the code up on our Patreon page, so if you guys want to support him and get, go over there and get some Broadheads. A pretty sweet discount and hopefully we'll just keep adding to that and we also have some more pretty sweet plans for the fall to add to the patreon thing so get on there and support us we really appreciate it helps keep these coming out
1: yeah thank you jason at toughhead broadheads uh joe sold toughhead broadheads recently to jason and uh jason's a younger guy and he's taking this broadhead company under his wing and he's going to run with it and He's, uh, uh, making some improvements, uh, to an already fantastic product. And so go to Toughheads Broadheads and, uh, check him out. He's got a new website. He's on, uh, all the social medias and, uh, support him because he's, uh, helping support us. So thanks again, Jason at Toughhead.
0: All right. Well, this, this week's podcast, who do we got on, man?
1: Well, we, uh, we got a couple different, uh, reaching out to us, uh, Wanting us to, you know, talk to some of these other organizations after we had that big podcast with Doug Borland and Don Thomas. And uh, then we had uh, the president himself of Pope and Young Club reach out to us and kind of want to talk about, uh, you know, their side of things and what they're up to.
0: Yeah, it was pretty cool. Jim, Jim Willems, um, he's been on a couple other podcasts. If you guys don't know, he's, The Pope and Young President, he's, uh, in his third term as the Pope and Young President. And yeah, like James said, we talked a lot about all the organizations and, and, uh, so kind of gave, gave, he kind of wanted to come on and give his side. So, uh, yeah, we're, we love talking about these things, the, you know, maybe controversial stuff that most guys don't want to talk about. He had the guts to get on here and talk about that stuff. He's a super good dude. He's a, bow hunt machine traditional bow hunt machine he sent us those pictures from this year it's like geez so uh he's been doing it a long time he's been super involved and you know we had a lot of our other listeners are super involved in the Pope and Young too you know Kelser called me after that he listened to that podcast we had a long conversation and and uh so yeah we we got Jim on we talked about a lot of the issues going on with with uh bow hunting the history of Pope and Young and and all of those things, I think we covered it pretty good. Um, I think, uh, you know, the one thing we forgot to cover is kind of like the trophy hunting aspect that we talked about on with Doug and Don, you know, but I don't think there's much arguing that. And I mean, it's just the way it is. It's hard. It's, it's a hard thing to get rid of now. <laughs> you know, maybe I know we started these clubs, you know, Pope and Young, you know, to to kind of document that, you know, back in the day to document that bows were an efficient weapon, and kind of like have that written documentation, and same with Compton, I mean, we have a record book at Compton, you know, it's a little different, it kind of gives some points to self-bows, and, you know, wood arrows, kind of a little better score the hunt, but I think that's just human nature to kind of take that and run with it, and, you know, for better or worse, I don't, I don't know, you know, like I said, it's human nature, it's a hard thing to stop now, so we did forget, we didn't really cover that a lot, but we talked about the you know, the ever changing line, you know, with all the rules and bow hunting and what it's become and, and, you know, whether, how, how do we, how do we maintain what we have and, you know, and improve on it. And that's his main goal as the president of the Pope and Young. He knows we're losing things. You know, we talked about that and, and he's challenged with the task of running, you know, the national bow hunting organization and trying to keep what we have, you know, and that's a tough spot right now with all the technologies and hunting and all the improvements over bow hunting in the last 25, 30 years. And, uh, you know, and right or wrong when, when he's representing a majority of the bow hunters and a majority of the bow hunters want more let off and want to be able to shoot a hundred yards. It's tough. And, uh, so they're kind of, you know, they've, they've made decisions over time based on, their majority and whether those are good or not for bow hunting, I think we're kind of seeing that. Um, but, it, but I can kind of tell, you know, he's just in a tough spot. So, um
1: yeah, I think all these organizations, um, have merit and they, uh, you know, are set out to do the right thing. And I think that it's just hard for everybody to, you know, find something that they relate to, um, Completely and totally. I think that Pope Young has done a, a wonderful job um, bringing bow hunting, you know, onto the table and, and uh, it, they're definitely someone that we should support. I mean, do, do I support and believe in their whole mission statement and everything they're about? No. But I think that if you read between the lines, um, the greater good is, uh, is there.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I mean, honestly, Shoot me twenty years ago, you know. I didn't even think about, you know, like You know what I mean? Like I didn't think about all that stuff. I never thought it would get where it is now. I'd be like, okay, if guys want to do that, guys can do it. You know, if guys want to, blah blah blah, it do- doesn't matter. But, but uh over time, you know, there's kind of consequences for all those things, and I and I would imagine a lot of the serious, you know, hardcore bow hunters, even you know that belong to Pope and Young, would love to take some of that stuff back and it's a tough place to be, you know, it's tough thing to do. Um, we talked to him about, you know, our ideas of, you know, further promoting bow hunting and being able to get, you know, maintain and add on to what we can, you know, our hunts through traditional seasons and stuff like that. And, uh, and, and the bottom line is, you know, if we're gonna, if we're gonna be able to do those things and make those changes, you got to get involved and, you know, So, you know, if, if you don't agree with what's going on, sign up, become a member of Pope and Young and you can call Jim and call their board and talk to him about that stuff and say, Hey, you know, let's, let's try these things and try to, you know, go for traditional seasons or, or, you know, it's, it's hard to go back. You know, we just, as, as humans, we just shoot ourselves in the foot. You know, it's just kind of the bottom line. We talk and we talk about all this stuff. We probably don't need to go down the whole road. We'll talk about it in the podcast, but. Yeah. Exactly. And I mean,
1: and as you said, as humans, I mean, if you look at some of the humans that are involved in the Pope and Young club, guys like Mike Barrett and the Colzers and, um Jim oh, himself, yeah.
0: Yeah, Jim I mean, that,
1: himself, that's yeah. enough to make you think, okay, well, there's got to be more to this than I know because, uh, apparently they've got, uh, some great company in that organization.
0: Yeah. And, and you know, Jim even said that a lot of the people on their, um, On their board right now are trad guys, you know, old school bow hunters. And that's how the, you know, that's how the Pope and Young started. And I think the main issue a lot of us trad guys have is when the Pope and Young decides to adopt lead off and, you know, expandable broadheads and, you know, when they decide to adopt these rules, makes it easier for each state to say well okay now we can have this you know because we fought that stuff in oregon and what happens as soon as the pope and young you know says it's okay because they're the national bowhunting organization so it's it's a tough spot and i think you know i don't know for sure but i think personally you know like hearing from a lot of those guys like they would have they'd love to see it go back but it's kind of too late now so where do we go now you know Right. Um, Jim knows he lives in New Mexico, you know, he knows how far guys are shooting and, and what's going on out there. He's he hunts all over the place, man. He's, you know, just bow hunting fool. So he knows what's going on and having him as the president right now, I think that's a good thing. And like I said, if we're gonna make these differences just like getting involved with Comptons, you know, we need to get involved with Pope and Young and help spread that message in the in the right way. If we just ignore it, you know, we're not gonna be helping. So
1: yeah, so if you guys think we missed anything on this one, um, it would be a good excuse to get Jim back on because he's got a lot to share. He's a stud. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this one. And uh, reach out to us if we miss something, and uh, we can get him back on and, and uh, follow up. So we hope you guys enjoy this one. All
0: right, let's do this thing. How's it going down there in New Mexico today? Oh, it's going great. Great weather. Going to be in
2: the 70s. Going to go nice. fishing this weekend.
0: Nice. I hear you guys got a lot of moisture this winter for the antler. Oh, we did. Yes. Yeah, really wet. Hope it didn't hurt the mule deer, but,
2: uh, you know, you can't control that.
0: Well, those, uh, those elk will be huge this year down there. Everybody's saying. So I might even be strolling down there to hunt them. We'll see. We'll, we'll get to that later. But, uh, yeah, for it. our listeners, um, that don't know Jim Willems, he's the president of the Pope and Young. He's uh, what's is it your third or fourth term as president, Jim? I'm on my third term. We, we have the... two-year terms, so I'm about five years in right now. Right on. Jim lives out here in New Mexico, and uh, if you guys listen to our podcast episode seventy-nine with Doug Borland and Don Thomas, there was uh, some things said about the Pope and Young that probably uh, were not good for Jim, especially. So he reached out to us and wanted kind of a little chance to clear his name and. We love talking about, uh, on our podcast here about important things and bow hunting for us is number one. And so it is for Jim also. So hopefully we can, uh, have a little discussion on the past, present and future bow hunting and what we as bow hunters can do to help preserve it and make it better in the future. And then I know I've listened to a couple of Jim's podcasts and I know he really wants to just talk about hunting and he never gets to. So <laughs> yeah. hopefully we can do a little, A little half hour or so on, uh, solving all the world's problems and then get into some selfishly some New Mexico elk stories and good stuff like that. So. Yeah, that would be great. All right. So Jim, I know, I know what we talked about on that last podcast was, was kind of the moving line and for traditional bow hunters and, and I think even the old school compound guys back in the, you know, seventies and eighties when we got a lot of our seasons out here and, and the whole bow hunting craze started um you know things were a lot different than they were today and i think is is uh you know is i don't know and and what we talked about was maybe the ata putting pressure on the pope and young and all, and all that stuff but but as these things came up with you know let off expandable broadheads mechanical releases like all these things have happened over the last 30 years and and there's you know people out there that obviously think that's great and there's people out there that don't and obviously our listeners for the most part are on the don't think it's great side so maybe you can talk a little bit about the history of that and and what okay what the pressure where where that pressure was from each time you know what i'm saying yeah absolutely
2: yeah, so the, our, our biggest problem is is there's just a whole lot of people who aren't members of the Pope and Young Club and either have never been a member or dropped out, you know, 30 years ago who don't understand anything about our history and, and why we do what we've done. And, uh, you know, and that's why I called in. You get trash talking from people who literally don't, don't know what they're talking about. Even highly respected bow hunters who... Who should know better they have an impression of what's going on and and they have it completely wrong so you know let's just start with the beginning of the pope and young club we were founded to create bow hunting opportunities that's what we are and that's who we are it's what we've always been and and in order to do that we needed to uh quantify our successes and that's why the record book and and you know there's people that have a problem with the record book and that's fine you can you can complain about it all you want but it's it's literally the reality of bow hunting um it's the reality of the world people want to uh quantify their successes and they want to know where they stand how they rate among other people and if you don't like that that's fine that's that's perfectly fine um but you need to understand why we do it and and why it started and so the history was we we created the record book we created the pope and young club and of course i say we that was long before my time i wasn't even born yet (laughs) But anyhow, um, Jim,
1: Jim, let me uh, interrupt. So also, was it also formed uh, to prove lethality? Uh, Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because
2: Um, I'm sure you've heard the stories that people thought this was just a novelty and you really couldn't kill anything. And and uh, and we knew you could, because obviously we had uh, Saxon Pope and Art Young from. You know, what, 60 or uh, 40 years before the creation of the club, they they were killing lions in Africa and moose and and brown bear and all of this with their their fairly primitive longbows. Uh, you know, back in the early 1900s. So, how do you prove that you that you can do something? Um, you put it in writing. You you record it, and that's what the record book was all about. And one of our biggest problems is. We were so successful, and, and I'm not saying just the Pope and Young Club. It was a grassroots efforts from the state and local organizations and national organizations. Um, but looking back, just about every uh, pivotal person within any given state was also a member of the Pope and Young Club. So it was, it was all the same people. And you know, within a period of about 10 years, we went from very few um, specific archery seasons to just about every state had some sort of archery only season and that was just from the hard work from all of
0: these people and and the record book had to be used to to make that happen so when the rec- pope and young started the record book start what what year did pope and young start 1960.
2: uh, <clears throat> 1961
0: 1961 and I know out here at least I don't know all the history of Oregon but we started getting our, you know, statewide seasons in the late 70s and I, and so Pope and Young kind of boomed for a number of years I'm imagining in the 70s and 80s.
2: They did and and you know we, we the club grew clear up until oh probably about 2008. And and then we started falling out of favor and and it was any number of reasons on both ends of the spectrum um but, you know, a lot of it pivoted around equipment. And you had the people who wanted more modern equipment who were upset because we weren't accepting it. And you had people with the traditional equipment who were upset because we were accepting it. And it, you know, literally was a no-win situation. Um, but uh, the main reason I got a hold of you, there, there, the comment made was, um, and I wrote it down just to make sure I don't get it right, in my opinion, they are controlled by manufacturers and they promote unethical approach to hunting, particularly trophy hunting. Um, that first statement, controlled by manufacturers, is just absolutely incorrect. The Pope and Young Club is, is controlled by bow hunters. We are controlled by our members. And, you know, there have been times when, when the board of directors was heavily laden with either manufacturers or um, writers or what you would call industry people. But that hasn't been the case for twenty years. And you know, to say we're controlled by manufacturers when there's not a single uh person within the, the archery industry on our board um is yeah, it's disingenuous and, and you're you're trying to say something that's not true. So so I I wanna I wanted to clear that up. You know, we we are controlled by our voting members, our regular and senior members who, who presently there's about six hundred of those um, you have to belong to the club for a certain period of time before you can become a voting member. Um, and you have to be fairly successful to be a voting member. It's, it's kind of based on the Boone and Crockett formula, which is, has been a curse and helped us at the same time. But nothing happens significantly within the Pope and Young Club without those 600 580 or 600 members having input. And, and these members are hunters. These are all bow hunters. And I haven't taken a poll recently, but I would suspect that a significant number are traditional bow hunters, um
0: way higher than the, the national average. how how, so, many, how many people are on the board for the Pope and Young? We
2: have a 13 member board.
0: 13 member board. So, so you're saying that <clears throat> in the last 20 years, there's definitely been no, you know, influence from the manufacturers. Could have happened before then, if you know right if some of the board of director members were heavily you know in the industry we'll say but uh but that stuff's not happening anymore oh let's see how how can i explain this i feel like i'm, I'm gonna give you the way i see it which i'm i'm probably could be totally wrong but from the outside looking in the pope and young has kind of been known as the bow hunting police right i mean over time you so guys are not now? yeah that's yeah, that's, the, that's, you guys where we've been. are the national bow hunting organization. Right. And when bow hunting started in the, you know, we can say the 60s and 70s, you know, like, yeah, there was seasons in the 30s or whatever, but when all this technology started, I think, I think there's a lot of bow hunters and, and not just trad guys, the old school compound guys that, you know, I'm, I have a lot of friends in low places, but I know, I hunt with a lot of compound guys. They're kind of old school too, but I feel like, and, and you can give me my opinion, your opinion on this, but maybe that over time, over the last 35 years, that a lot of people f- feel like the Pope and Young is maybe like not drawn a hard enough line in the sand. Like we, we rely, we relied on you guys to, to keep bow hunting bow hunting. And, and I don't know your opinions on it, but from, from 1975 to 2019, mm-hmm. Man, it has changed a ton. And I get it. Life, you know, I'm not a complainer. I, I still love it. But, you know, do you think there's times in there we should have maybe stepped back? And and how do we, knowing where we're at now, you know, we, we're obviously not going to be able to take a lot of that stuff away. Like, how do we preserve it and make it better in the future?
2: Okay. Well, you know, that's two parts. So mm-hmm. the, the first part is <clears throat> you felt like we didn't draw, draw a hard enough line in the sand and, The the reality is, you know what, 80 to 90 percent of bow hunters shoot a compound bow. And when we draw a line that says the compound can only be so advanced and eventually the public bow hunter, excuse me, eventually the public bow hunter says, you know what, that's that's a ridiculous line. We're just going to do it anyway. Um, When say 50 percent of all bow hunters uh just go back to the 85 percent rule or the 65 percent rule when when the vast majority of bow hunters decided you know what that's a ridiculous rule we're going to shoot whatever bow we want to shoot and pretty soon we lose relevancy we're not representing bow hunters anymore we fought that one hard and and that that battle cost us dearly and it it cost us dearly from both sides because we we didn't give up on the 65% maximum let off until it was too late. Um, people had quit because they wanted to shoot a 70% let off bow and didn't see any difference between that and 65%. And then, as soon as we realized, you know, we just have to accept it or we're no longer uh, representing bow hunters, then all of the people that didn't want us to, then a bunch of those people quit. So it's. <laughs> It's a no-win situation when it comes to technology, and, and all you can do is just the best you can do today. And, and the, the let-off was an issue. Um, was it an issue worth fighting? I, I don't know. Um, the concern was we're going to have bows with 95 or 98% let-off uh, when, realistically, those you know that type of bow would be very hard to shoot and not nearly as accurate. Now with the with the releases, and, you know the the let off is going up. But as a national organization that represents bow hunting, what do you do when the majority of bow hunters ignore your rules? Do you you stand pat and and do you pretend to be Comptons um, and and only accept certain things and become irrelevant, or do you adapt to bow hunting and you know you you accept things that that I certainly don't agree with? But the Pope and Young Club represents bow hunting. The Pope and Young Club doesn't represent traditional bow hunting. And where's the line? There's there the line could be anywhere. Well, uh, our our fair chase affidavit has eight specific things that we consider uh not to be fair chase and and for years uh any electronic device on a bow or an arrow was was uh not fair chase. And and then, of course, we had the whole lighted knock issue. And pretty soon, a significant number of people are using lighted lighted knocks. And it came down to how do you defend your fair chase statement when lighted knocks don't affect fair chase? It doesn't give you an unfair advantage. And, and of course, they can be abused, but anything can be abused. But, uh, once again, do we represent bow hunters or... Or do we represent bow hunting exactly the way we think it should be?
0: Yeah, so I guess what we can say is human nature is to take the easy route, and we're going to shoot ourselves in the foot. <laughs> and that's well, what happens. Well, we already have.
2: We, we already have. Um, a recent study I saw said that there are like 3.7 million bow hunters in the United States. Um but any state that that has allowed crossbows to be used in the general archery season within about five years, half of the so called bow hunters have switched from a bow to a crossbow um It wouldn't be any different if you allowed a thirty out six in the bow season. in fact, it'd probably be seventy or eighty percent. but what that tells me is is that fifty percent of people who called themselves bow hunters five years ago never were bow hunters. They were they were just hunting the season of opportunity and it, it wasn't about the bow. It was about success and opportunity. And we try to represent bow hunters. Um and that yeah. the definition of bow hunter is sadly changes all the time. It has uh it, it has since our beginning.
0: Yeah, and that's so the, and that's I, the you know, I think the the crossbow thing is a look into the future for us with compounds because you know i posted a thing on our instagram the other day and of course we got lit up No, nope. i i appreciate you having for for having the balls to get on here jim for one and talk about this stuff because man the people <laughs> the hunting just they try to eat us alive for not just agreeing that everything's okay so i we appreciate you know being able to get on here and share opinions and talk about like the real issues and and so you know my my thought is Every, every compound guy, and this is partially just cause James and I, when we first started our podcast, we started getting, you know, lit up for just trad seasons, which we'll talk about those with you here in a little bit. But, but, um, but every compound guy, at least for the most part, you know, like I said, maybe it's 50% now, but most of the compound guys, especially out west out here, and, and I know things are totally different back east and, and, and the white tails and they need to be killed. And, and that's a, that's a different, hard ball game but I know out west we have limited resources limited opportunity and and for the for everybody that shoots a compound to be out here at least to be totally okay just saying crossbows are the end of the world and they're the you know they're the worst thing they're not bows which I agree I totally agree with that but then the next week they take their compound out and they can shoot a hundred yards plus like like the 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 gap is narrowing so much that I find it totally ironic that we can, we can we can make those statements. You know what I mean? I mean, I met several guys in the field last year shooting 100 plus yards. I've been, I had shoulder surgery, so I've been up a lot at night watching YouTube videos. <clears throat> Man, it is unbelievable. Thousands of YouTube videos of insane you know 70 80 90 100 108 you know guys just taking somebody else's bow that they didn't have their own bow and just you know shooting it for the first time at 70 some yards and and i mean it the gap is getting pretty narrow
2: well it is i'll agree with that but then you also have to consider you know i i hate to bring this up but um pope Saxton Pope and Art Young, they took hundred yard shots with their longbows.
0: Oh yeah. Just, um, we don't I, consider
2: that ethical now, but it it's it's not anything new. um yeah, I just read the I might, just might
0: read be- the um I got that silver tip book and man old Paul Schaefer, he dropped some bombs too. I mean he shot he shot this <laughs> yeah. one at seventy, eighty and a hundred, you know, but but the I guess the difference is that I, I see Jim's like yeah, people and that's part of my point with this is we we can preach our, our ethics and, and try to get people to, you know, hunt close and shoot 20 yards. Like, but uh, humans, human nature, like 90% of people are going to take advantage of what they have. Like that's just, unfortunately, that's the way most people are, you know? And, and so if, if their bow can shoot a hundred and some yards, they're going to let her rip. The difference is, you know, Saxton Pope and, and, you know, whoever Paul Shipp, the the guys with a recurve, man, I don't, I don't know, I, I don't know about you guys, but, I couldn't hit a damn barn door at seventy some yards with my recurve, so the odds of them hitting anything are pretty low. These guys now, they're driving nails at a hundred
1: man, and, and they I don't I don't the blame them. Are dying, so yeah, I, I don't blame guys taking these 80, 100 yard shots when they're they have pinpoint accuracy with the equipment has uh, advanced to the point where it allows them to do that uh, ethically. I, I mean, it seems that. You know, I, like Bob said, it's human nature. If if your bow can shoot 140 yards, shooting uh, 80 yards is a is a chip shot.
0: And this and this well, also, you, Jim, like we talked about. I mean, you live in New Mexico, so I mean, this this isn't just in bow hunting. I think bow hunting is the biggest example of it right now, but it's also in muzzle muzzleloaders. New Mexico has a pretty lenient. Uh, rules on their muzzleloaders and i've heard of guys that are just shooting 500 yards with muzzleloaders in new mexico rifles now we got everybody goes and buys a long-range gun and in a weekend they're shooting 800 to 1200 yards like we have to stop and ask ourselves like are these things good for hunting right oh
2: absolutely and and it comes down to you can't legislate morality or, or ethics um it's it's hard to do that when people are out in the woods by themselves they're going to do what they're going to do so the best thing you can do is advocate for sportsmanship and ethics and you have to start with uh you know in your own camp uh, if, if you're hunting with guys and they're taking 100 yard shots and they're gut shooting animals or clipping the top of their backs uh you know it's up to us to say you know what that's that's too far you shouldn't be doing that that's not bow hunting um but the, the, getting back to your original statement is there There still is a huge difference between a crossbow and the modern compound uh, because it takes a significant amount of practice for for a compound shooter to be able to shoot accurately to 100 yards. It takes a lot of practice. Um, the average 10-year-old kid can pick up a crossbow with a scope that's sighted in properly, and shooting off the bench, if he has a little bit of trigger control, he can shoot accurately at 100 yards within three or four shots. So so there's there still is a huge difference but like yeah, you said done. the gap the gap is narrowing but then also uh, the crossbow technology is increasing and and just getting out of sight. Um but, you know we we could beat that to death but yeah. the the great thing is we're seeing a, a a big insurgence of young people in particular uh switching to trad bows mm-hmm. and the the popularity's coming up and and people are looking at it and it's just like what I did 35 years ago, I, I was fairly successful with a compound bow for three or four years. And, you know, and and I was mostly hunting Kansas, hunting whitetails and, you know, any deer that walked by, I could kill it. And I thought, you know, I'm bow hunting for a reason and I'm not bow hunting to be able to kill everything that walks by. So I, I picked up a trad bow and, uh, you know, 30 years later, I finally got good enough to where I could kill a lot of stuff.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and I and we see that a lot, and I think that's, I think this this advancement in technology is helping traditional archery for sure because the the bow hunters out there that that love the challenge, they love to shoot their bow all the time and practice and stump shoot, and it's like that that art you can't master, you know, it's like the guys that are really into golf or whatever, you know, if if something's easier, you kind of just lose interest with it, and I think that's what's happening with the, the bows nowadays that, you know, guys can go to a pro shop, and and yeah, I, I don't disagree, it takes a lot of practice to shoot to a hunter, but man, I, I'll i tell you a quick little story, back in, this is probably 99, 2000, I always shot fingers with a compound, and uh, I had a buddy of mine that wanted to go bow hunting, and so, and you know, this was releases and all that stuff were big back then too, so I said, well, we'll go to the archery shop, I know, I know the guy down there, I don't I don't know the one thing about setting up a bow to shoot a release. So we go down there. He sets it all up. Comes back home to the backyard and in 20 minutes he was driving nails at 30 yards. And that was shoot 15, 18 years ago and and that's when I was like, "Man, this is <laughs> this is not good. I've been shooting my whole life to do that, you know. But <clears throat> uh yeah, we we could hammer that stuff all over. I think you know getting on to the second part of my question the what do we do to preserve the you well, know
1: I, I would like oh, to uh, I would like to to interrupt for a second so to kind of put my uh, observation on it going back to talking about what we were talking about with Don Thomas and uh, Doug Borland and uh, the Pope of Young Club um, it seems like that the manufacturers weren't exactly that, – that, it's not fair to say that, that, that you guys are in bed with the manufacturers. I see that. But the manufacturers put these products out, and the bow hunters adopted these products and put pressure on the Pope and Young to change their footing on technology. And then the states could then look and say, well, hey, this reputable – Organization, Pope and Young is willing to uh, accept these things and we can just keep moving forward there. That I think that, you know, from the outside looking in, that that was the conversation. And, um, how, how do you, uh, well, how would you address that?
2: Well, that, that's sad and true at the same time. Um, but once again, is the Pope and Young club going to represent bow hunters? And, and as, as society changes, uh, everything changes. Um, you know, we weren't, we didn't have cell phones 20 years ago or, or smartphones or any of that. Um, everything in life changes and sure, we'd like to keep bow hunting as traditional as possible, but, um, it, it's, it's not possible. Um, you, you know, a few, a number of years ago, they, they formed the Compton's bow hunting organization to represent just the, the traditional bow hunters and, and give them a place to, uh, you know, congregate and join and, and be a part of and say, yeah, I don't want to be a part of this, this national trend. We're going to do it this way. Um, but that's a very small minority. And it, I don't like the technology issues. It is literally the worst part about being president of the Polk and Young Club is, is looking at new technologies and saying, no, we can't do that. Or, or, you know, that probably doesn't affect fair chase. Um, but it violates our electronics rules as it's written, so we're not going to change that either. But once again, it's, we're, we're ruled by bow hunters. Bow hunters decide what we're going to do, and, uh, the technology is going to keep advancing, and we're going to be behind the curve as, uh, constantly saying you can't do that until at some point we have to take it. And, yeah, guys want it. That's just a sad reality. Um, yeah. it's, that's just the way we have, we have to deal with things. And and we fight it as long as we can. And, and, you know, we are really the only, um, you know, national organization out there that, that, uh, preaches fair chase, fair chase and, and ethical hunting. Um, Can you tell us more about that? Well, um, in order to animal, enter an animal in our record book, it has, you have to follow our rules of fair chase. And, and we have eight things that we list as not acceptable. And almost all of these things, every bow hunter in the world today says, yeah, that makes complete sense. Um, and, you know, I'll just read them out. It's uh, helpless in a trap beats snow or water or ice. That's not acceptable. Shooting from a power vehicle or power boat. Um, shooting behind a high fence enclosure. Spotlighting or jack lighting. Um, using tranquilizers or poisons. Um, using any power vehicle or power boat to herd or drive animals to to somebody or communicate from an aircraft. Um, and, and then here's the, the toughest one, uh, electronic devices. This is the one that causes us all the problems today, but uh, the use of electronic device for locating, attracting or pursuing or guiding the hunter to such game or use of a bow and arrow with electronic advice attached with the exception of lighted knocks and recording devices. So do you
1: think that giving giving in to the lighted knock and the I'm just kind of playing devil's advocate here, uh, giving in to the lighted knock and the um, cameras being hooked to bows was worth the fuss of changing one of your guys' guidelines and rules?
2: Yeah, I think it was because you you can't you can't defend not using them. Um, how does how does either of those affect fair chase? And we even had a, a board member that said, um, you know what? For years, I had a, an electric watch strapped to my bow. I got in a tree stand. I strapped the watch to the bow so I knew when legal shooting time was done. And he said, I hunted with, hunted that way for 20 years until somebody pointed out, um, you shoot an animal, it doesn't qualify for Pope and Young. That violates the rules of fair chase. So it, it comes back to how does it affect fair chase? And sure, lighted knocks are a gimmick. Um, but it's aside from a, a blanket statement, it's not defensible. And, and the other issue is, is, uh, before I became president, there's a 14 year old kid that, that I know real well, him and his dad. And, and, uh, he, he shoots a recurve bow, but he's had a, uh, a video camera on his bow since he was 12 and he has some of the coolest footage in the world. But here you have a guy shooting a recurve bow that has a camera on it. And he can't enter any of his, any of his animals. And oh, yeah, as is. we were discussing whether this was, was ethical or not, the, the hardcore um, no electronics guys said, well, why would anybody want to do that? And my response was, <laughs> if you've seen the videos and you've seen the excitement on this kid's face, you wouldn't even make that statement. Um, so once again, it didn't affect Fair Chase and... right or wrong it it was one thing that we had to address and the lighted knock in particular was dividing the club just like things have done for the past 60 years there's there's one item that people quit over on both sides and at some point you have to either accept it or or you don't and it got to the point where we couldn't defend how it affected fair chase so now it's legal
0: you're in a tough spot. I mean, especially when, when your members are voting what they want, you gotta, like you said, you gotta represent them if, if they're the bow hunters now. So, but that's human nature, man. We take the easy route. I mean, that's why we don't ride horses to school anymore or to work, but uh, right. some things need to change. And, and that's where I think that that's why I think James and I, you know, I, I don't know if you know about Oregon. We have a couple trad seasons and we're trying to get, some more we're getting them extended and we're hoping to be able to do that in some other states we're working we're working on that in a couple different states and we're just we're trying to push that because i i i understand your problems i see you know i've been around bow hunting since i was a little kid and what's happened in the last 25 years you know i i i am scared of what that'll be like in 25 more years you know i have a daughter and you know I want her to be able to have some of those same opportunities and man if it if it does what it's done in the last twenty five the next twenty five it's gonna be tough. I mean you know out west here it's it's a lot harder to get tags we're losing a lot more of our general opportunities where y you know fees are going up the landowner ta- like everything's going up because this bow hunting that used to be a thing where only the you know hardcore or the idiots that you know didn't care about getting anything you could say. Those guys with you know to apply for a tag that took several years to draw they're not gonna you know like unless you're a bow hunter you're not gonna apply for that tag now everybody applies for it because the game has changed and so now they see that as an opportunity well i can I can get that tag hunt an elk during the rut instead of you know with my rifle so now you're kind of in the bucket with everybody and man the the opportunities are dwindling and on top of that, talking to a lot of these biologists and and stuff like there's they're, they're starting to get some heat for the success rates and and the amount of people in the field I know Colorado's dealing with issues you know starting to have to maybe control their elk or cap their tags and and all yeah. this stuff going on and this is where James and I we see an opportunity and there's an opportunity to talk to talk to these you know agencies and Commission and and be able to say, hey, before we go and control this and lose opportunity, cause when you control something, you're losing opportunity. I don't care who says what. That's what's happening. You're limiting the tags. You're limiting opportunity. Before we do that, let's, let's restrict the weapon choice. You know, let's make it a traditional hunt. Like there is traditional hunts. I know a lot of people don't know about them, but we have some in Oregon. There's one in Oklahoma at the McAllister plant. It's been around for a long time you know auburn did a study in it on it in 97 and it was just fascinating the the benefits to the white tail deer tail deer management from having a traditional hunt they they got a new one i think in west virginia last year so so these things are popping up and for the future of bow hunting i think that's <laughs> such a good route to go and i'm you know obviously biased because i'm a trag guy but what do you think about like are we nuts jim like <laughs>
1: I no, think it's I, good uh, for all, all bow hunters. Right? Yeah. And that's, that's my point.
0: That's why I'm talking to the Pope and Young president about it because no, no matter what, like whether you're a compound guy or not, all the bow hunters I know that say, would you rather lose opportunity or lose this general season? Or even if you're a compound guy, go hunt it with a, with a recurve or a longbow, they're going to say, well, I just want to go bow hunt. I'll, I'll, you know, I got an old recurve laying around, right?
2: Sure, and you know I, I think, but you know, you're not nuts for doing it. I think you're you're probably going in the right direction, and and I know I'm going to take some heat for this, but our problem is we're we're we've been too successful. Um, our success rate has gone up. We were never supposed to be this successful um, and have these longest seasons. Uh, we weren't supposed to have this big of impact, and and I can give you a prime example. Uh, I drew a Henry Mountains, uh, Utah bison tag last year. And originally they gave fifteen tags, and I drew one of the two non-resident tags, which was unbelievable to begin with. And and then they had a severe drought, and then they decided well, we need to give some more tags and knock the population down because they're they're going to go into winter with no food. So they ended up giving twenty tags total for this this archery bison hunt, and the success was eighteen out of twenty in a stinking bow hunt. Wow, and. When when they asked for the the archery only bison hunt for, from the state of the fishing game, you know the reasoning was you know this will take some relief off of the rifle hunt. We'll we'll probably kill about 40 percent success, so you can get more people out there. Um, you know make it a little easier for everybody to draw. And then the second year they have the season, they're they're at 90 percent success with bow hunting equipment. And I would, I would just about bet that of those two people that didn't kill something, you know, statistically there's, there's about 20% that don't even hunt that for whatever reason, don't even go. So yeah. did those guys even show up? And, and, you know, I I probably talked to at least 15 of those 20 hunters. And uh, as far as I know, I was the only trad bow guy there. Um, you know that I I didn't feel like that was any big disadvantage. I can shoot accurately to 40 yards and um, shoot at the big target. Yeah, so yeah, that's uh, the best thing to but but, dry, the, but but that gets back to um, yeah. And Jim, been don't been too successful.
1: Yeah, please don't get uh, us confused. Like we hunt with other guys with compounds as well. Um, from you know Bob's family likes old school compound archery. I have a lot of friends that use the latest and greatest and buy everything brand new. Um we love bow hunters and rifle hunters. We're not trying to make a divide. It's it's just like if we are willing to limit ourselves to such primitive equipment just like in our state even the muzzle loaders are pretty primitive, then it creates opportunity. And that's I guess the point that we want to make and something we want to share with, um, you know, other states that you can create opportunity uh, where we will have that low success rate, um, but we can get guys into the field.
2: Yeah, exactly. And and you and I are dealing with something completely different than the, the guys on the east, eastern part of the country, and and that is we typically can't get a tag for what we want to hunt, even as archers. Um right. You know, I, I remember my daughter when she was in in high school. I'd put her in for youth hunts, and she's a rifle hunter. She just liked to go shoot stuff. And and you could put in ten applications um, in New Mexico, ten per person. And and we have, if you count Havelina and turkey, we have fourteen big game species in New Mexico. Um, but there was ten applications, and there was two years while while she was growing up that we were oh for twenty in new mexico and i was putting in for archery tags and she was putting in for a lot of youth tags and and of course you know that we have the bighorn and the and the oryx and the ibex and stuff that is really hard to draw but you know we're also talking about cow elk hunts for a kid right. and you know if a kid can't get a cow elk tag just about every year man there's there's something wrong with that
0: yeah we have limited resource that's for sure i think we beat up all that stuff let's talk some hunting are are you good okay. on that, James? Can we talk hunting now? Oh yeah. And I okay. also just
1: I just want to just thank Jim for, you know, taking his own free time to uh help run an organization like Pope and Young. Um they are uh our only national uh bow hunting organization. And uh I know that uh you know we can't agree with anything you know everything that they do, but I know that they put on the good fight uh, for bow hunting and their, uh, attentions are, uh, uh, well. So thank you, Jim. I appreciate it.
2: Oh, you're welcome. It's, it's absolutely a pleasure to, to discuss and debate any of this at any time. I just enjoy the heck out of it.
0: Yeah. Well, heck Yeah. We appreciate it, man. It's a, we know how much time's involved. We're, we're involved with, with TAO on the board of directors and stuff like that. And just our little pipsqueak group out here, man, we're, we're always got stuff going on i feel our president's swamped yeah i couldn't imagine how much time you spend we do appreciate it uh we we know you're in a really tough spot with everything going on and and it's you know we shoot our own selves in the foot i mean everybody wants the easy route you know for the most part and uh, like you said those are those are societal problems those are instant gratification we could We could go down that route and I'd love to sometime with you. That'd be awesome. Maybe around a campfire, but man, I could, we could go on and on and on, but I think we hit (laughs) it pretty good. And uh, I'd love to talk to you about hunting. I mean, let's start off with some Henry Mountains bison. I mean, I have, I might have a tag this year. I'm waiting to find out. Probably not, but I do apply. (laughs) I think I have been for 15 years. So let's, yeah, uh,
2: that's just it. I, I, you know, bison has been on my top of my bucket list forever. Um, probably since I killed my first elk 30 years ago. Um, I wanted to hunt bison. Um, but, you know, not seriously, serious enough to spend the money to, and apply because 30 years ago I didn't have the, the pot or the window. But anyhow, um, I ended up, uh, drew it on my 18th year. And I, I, they had two tags. One went to the guys with the, the most, one guy with most points and the other one was totally random. And Randy Newberg drew the, Drew with 19 points. There was three guys that had 19 points, and I drew the random uh, one out of 893 odds. Wow! And you know, I wanted to hunt them so bad, I almost pulled the trigger on on the uh, Pink Mountain, British Columbia hunt. Probably three different times. Uh, just send in the deposit, spend the you know. Started out being eight, nine thousand, and then it's ten, and then it's twelve, and then it's fourteen, and for whatever reason, something always came up that caused me to not send in the deposit and i talked to them about it just about every year and then because i I just decided i'm never going to draw this utah tag odds are one in 800 man that's you know that's not going to happen but lo and behold i drew it and uh you know i thought it was going to be a a pretty tough situation because of the drought because i went up there all around the end of june and uh there was no grass All of the man-made tanks were empty. Um, The the springs were running. There there was water. Um, So, uh, so I ended up putting a couple of trail cameras on some springs that were a little harder to get to. And and I I I did pretty well last year. I drew the bison tag. I drew Unit One in Arizona elk as a random. I didn't have enough points to draw it. Uh, Yeah, they gave 15 tags random. So so yeah, I'm kind of lucky.
0: did you get any crap from people thinking maybe you're the Pope and young president and they're hooking you up with some tags last year or what? Because yeah, that, I did. those odds are ridiculous.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. That was on both sides. Um, somebody made the comment. Uh, yeah. They give two bow tags in Utah and two famous guys drew it. Jim Willems <laughs> and Randy Newberg. And, and my response to that was, um, I, I hate to say it, but I didn't know who Randy Newberg was. And, <laughs> And I said, I guarantee you, nobody in the Utah Game and Fish Department has a clue who Jim Willems is. <laughs> so, so, I think I can defend that. But you know, you just got to apply. Mm-hmm. We have all these great opportunities, and I, I send in about 40 applications a year. And most years, I don't get a really good tag, but I've I've had a lot of really good tags. So. So yeah, I, I'm going into the season. I have the bison tag. I have the Arizona elk tag. I also drew a New Mexico elk tag, which was uh, a good unit, but the early hunt. So it was, you know, third choice, kind of a second tier hunt. My daughter drew, she lives in Colorado and she wanted to hunt elk. So she burned up her points and she drew a muzzleloader tag in unit 76, um, which is a good elk hunt. And, and what else? Oh, and, and, uh, I, I do Wyoming antelope most years and, I've been trying to do Prince of Wales Sitka Blacktail um, in August. Uh, I've, I've gone four out of the last five years, so there's just a ton of stuff going on. And then I drew these two really good tags, and I've, I've got to scout all of this stuff. And on top of that, we have the Pope and Young Club Rendezvous and board meetings and yada yada yada, and going fishing. So, so anyhow, I didn't getting back to bison. I didn't uh, scout as much as I wanted to. Uh, well, literally I scouted that one, that one weekend and put up two cameras and I saw one good bull and a little herd of cows and calves, but you know, it's so dry. There's just no food. And I was talking to a rancher about it and he said, well, if you find food and water, you'll find bison. And I was like, well, I found food. I found water, but where's the food? And, and so he just instantly starts cussing about how the bison are eating up all his grass. Um, but anyhow, I, I get through all my hunts and it really comes down to, um, I'm going to show up a few days early and do the scouting a few days before the season opens. And, and uh, I got there a few days early and checked my trail cameras. And there was one little spring that uh, they were coming in about every other day. And, and it was pretty hot and dry, so there's, there's a definite opportunity. But then we realized that uh, uh, the tops of the mountains had been getting some rain, the, the way the clouds would hang up on the tops, and there was decent grass above timberline. And you know, first evening scouting, we saw like seventy different bison above timberline up in this grass, and so it's it's looking like, well, oh, you know they're going to be a lot easier to find than than you expect because they they tend to be down in the cedars in the the little wet valleys where the grass is growing, and pressure can push them way down and make them really hard to find they they're notoriously it's been a pretty tough hunt. Um, especially for bow hunters during the rifle season, because after the first rifle shot, they tend to timber up and get hard to find. But, you know, fast forward to my hunt, we, we spotted several different herds above timberline. And, uh, buddy of mine, Bill Grammer, he came out, and helped me the, the first few days. And, um, he spotted some right as, right as, right at first light, but I couldn't pick out a big bull. And, and then we, spotted a herd of, I think, 18 above Timberline that looked like they'd be pretty hard to get to um, because they were up in the open, but then instantly some wise guy jumps off of his four-wheeler and and heads right up to them with the wind at his back, and I thought, well, okay, there's a saddle there. I'm just going to go get on the other side of the saddle, and as soon as they windy, maybe I'll get a shot, and man, just perfect. Just as soon as I got set up, a cow peeks over the, the ridge at 30 yards walking towards me and and the trail is going to make a bend they're going to be broadside at 20 and you know here we go open morning the the third one's a big bull and um he's facing me at about 25 and for whatever reason the cows just turn and go back and you know i i had the wind i was in the shade they didn't see me but it didn't work but anyhow the 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 guy was over the hill. I think they winded him and and probably the rest of the herd might have spooked and they heard him run off or something. I don't know. But uh, anyhow, I ended up getting five stocks the first day Wow! and just unbelievable hunt. I had one big lone bull bedded down in the Aspens for two hours at 30 yards and I just I couldn't get a shot and every half hour he'd stand up and move and lay down again and when he'd stand up and I'd almost get a shot that I just wouldn't have the right angle. And, and eventually he wended me. You can't be there for two hours and, yeah. and not have something happen, but it was just the coolest thing ever. And then, you know, then I got another stock and <clears throat> the bull walked by at, at 30 yards, but he had his head down and I couldn't see his belly. So I didn't know it was a bull. And then all the cows walked by and it's like, well, crap, the first one was the bull. And, um, just, opportunity after opportunity and just crying not to shoot one that was too small because it's once in a lifetime and and then the weather came in the snow and the fog and it made it pretty tough and ended up having to chain up just to get up there and and uh, on the fifth day broke a tire chain so and just muddier than heck and and uh, so I went home for a couple of days to buy a new set of chains and and clean everything up and and uh, then got back up there on the seventh day. It's a 15 day hunt. What, and, what time are you? And the great thing about. Not
0: to interrupt, but what time are you? This is October.
2: Year? October. Okay. It's October 5th to the 18th or something like that. Um, so it, it typically doesn't snow like that, but there was a foot of snow up there above timberline where the bison were. and wow. And, uh, you know, it made it great for spotting them, but, but we had about four days when you literally couldn't see 200 yards. Most of the day, just because yeah. of all the clouds and fog and whatever, but but it, it it it's always fun to go on a hunt like that where you're 100% certain you're going to get something. You just got to wait out the right one. It it just makes it so much more fun, where you don't have the pressure of man, I'm going to get one shot and I can't blow it. You know, <laughs> I, I just the, the, that pressure gets to you, and, and you yeah. you guys know how it is. Oh but, yeah. When you know you're going to have multiple opportunities, it's, it's just so much more relaxing and you enjoy it so much more. And, and, uh, anyhow, it, um, I, I got in on this bull on Friday afternoon when I got back up there and I had eight days left to hunt. So, so we're in good shape and, um, I blew it on him and, and tracked him and got in close again and blew it and then it got dark and, And uh, I thought, well, in the morning, I kind of know where they're going to be. And I I got in on them the next morning and there was two bulls and they worked into a little herd of cows and and I was pushing them a little hard. They kind of knew I was there and uh, I'd circle around above them and then, you know, peek over um, just below the two track and and they'd be walking by and I couldn't get a shot. And eventually I spooked them and they went over a saddle and I thought, well, the game's over today. And um, I, I was looking went up the saddle and saw they were going around the knob they didn't go down the other side and i realized well shoot i think i can go around the other side of this knob and head them off and so i just went as fast as i could and just as soon as i got on the west side of the knob they're walking by at 40 yards and um eventually there was two good bulls in there and eventually the the one i wanted stopped broadside had a cow in front of him and then she she took two steps forward and cleared the vitals and um i concentrated and shot and the lower quarter of him was covered with sagebrush and it was a reasonably long shot and with the arc of the arrow it it looked like it was just dropping in perfect it went over the top of the sagebrush and then was gone and i was like man did i shoot low you know just the arrow just disappeared and and they have so much hair down low i thought maybe i screwed it up and they all run off and they're bunched up at about 60 yards and I have my binoculars on them just trying to pick out the bull and I can't find him and I can't find him and lower my, my binoculars and <clears throat> catch movement off to my left and look down there and shoot there's a bison walking downhill by himself to the left uh, oh that's him and if he's leaving the herd he's hit and you know he's he'd gone a few more steps and just as I got the binoculars up I, I saw him cough and blow blood out of his nostrils and thought, oh, man, this is good. And two seconds later, he fell over. He, he made about 100 yards and fell over in the snow. It is the coolest thing ever. So awesome.
0: What was your setup, Jim?
2: I sh- uh, sh- Normally, I shoot a 52-pound bighorn, uh, take down recurve. Uh, when I'm hunting big stuff, I had a, have a set of 60-pound ASO- Osage limbs that I use that's about 10 feet per second faster than the 52s, and I was shooting the 60 pounds. And uh, typically, I shoot a cedar arrow. I I shot the same cedar arrow for, geez, 20 years probably. you kind of guy. And and my brother makes all my strings for me. I don't make strings, but I make all my own arrows. And uh, I didn't shoot broadheads um, up until about two weeks before the season. Uh, because it's never an issue and, and I don't know if it was because of the stiffer string or whatever, but I couldn't get my cedars to fly right with with broadheads and I have some old uh, Cabela's carbons um, that I've had forever that I, I practice with a lot. They're only about 20 grains lighter than my my cedar setup, but you know, they're so durable. I, I plank with them a lot and use it for jetos and whatnot, but anyhow, I I. uh Glued an insert into my glue-on Magnus uh, two-blade, and ended up using those arrows. The total weight's 565 grains, and uh, with with 540, this bow shoots about 195 feet per second. And so I assumed these were probably around 190 feet, somewhere around there. But anyhow, got a complete pass through on a 1500-pound bison
0: wow.
2: um, with that setup that's unbelievable that 40 but,
0: yards too that is, that is yeah awesome.
2: yeah unbelievable but and then and this, the good out, thing was the,
0: he how was the pack out
2: oh it was just ridiculous he died 120 <laughs> yards from the road lucky and nice. and I'd, I'd been following following him for um i don't know a mile that day maybe a mile and a half and they circled around and and not only 120 yards from the road, but 120 yards from my truck. That's where my truck was parked. And, uh, a friend of mine from, from Utah, Dallas Smith, another and young guy, he was, he was coming up to help me that day. Um, and he showed up about an hour later and, uh, it was right on the ridge right above the road we were able to drag it down the road on a flat spot and you know we literally cut it up and put the pieces on the tailgate to debone it and then uh, put them in bags and laid laid them on a tarp in the snow and you know it took us two hours and 45 minutes to get it from bison to meat and we were driving away so it was ridiculously easy
0: yeah you got lucky there i couldn't imagine a mile or two pack out with a bison oh my goodness Getting yeah you know bison. but it you
2: know it's cold you, and you you yeah. just take two or three trips a day or whatever you can handle and, and the meat will stay cold it's just just
1: another workout
0: so, <laughs> yeah. yeah free workout I, go. well not free but
1: well yeah. uh, B- bob uh got his bison fix in um i heard you uh, allude to august blacktails can we uh Dabble into that a little bit.
2: Sure. Um, I don't know if you know him, but uh, Bob, I mean, uh, lives in Alaska. Everybody calls him Black, Blacktail Bob. He's probably the preeminent uh, Sitka blacktail authority in Alaska. Yeah. Probably. And I met him hunting hunting cows deer in Mexico. Well, I'd met him before that, but I actually shared a camp with him in Mexico. I used to run a, a camp down there every January, and uh, Bob hunted with us and. He invited me up to go with him uh, he has a spot up in on prince of wales where he's uh cut a trail up through the rainforest to get to this timberline um area and just tough tough getting up there it's it, if you're in great shape with uh you know with a full backpack for a week's worth of hunting it's about a three-hour hike and usually there's, there's three of us that goes and there's usually somebody that's not in great shape. So it ends up being a four or five hour hike. And then once you get there, everything's just straight up and down, but, um, it's a great opportunity. I, you know, I appreciate him for inviting me. Um, I, I think he's getting to the point where he invites me now because I'm in good enough shape to help him where most of his hunting buddies are are getting up there and, and not necessarily all that great to have in camp anymore. Um, but anyhow, the, the, you have the opportunity for some really big bucks up there. I don't think I've ever seen a, a world record class buck, but I've certainly seen some that were within four or five inches of the world record. And wow. and that makes you think, well, you know, if he survived the year, he might be that big next year. And uh, I haven't killed one of those bucks yet, but just knowing that they're around uh, just makes me keep going back. Is it I built a nice box, but nothing really big yet.
1: Is it a spot in stock up in those meadows? It is, yeah,
2: yeah. It's it's the real steep alpine stuff, um, and and ideally you want you want it to be raining a bunch when you get there, and then have about a three day w- window of sunny weather. And you know if it's been really wet and the sun comes out, they tend to be out on the alpine hillsides feeding and sunning themselves, makes them easy to spot. Um And a few years we've had the, that ideal conditions, and in other years the weather was crappy and you didn't get hardly any hunting in. And then there's been a couple of years where they'd had really hot and dry weather before we got there, and, and then you get up there and the the deer are timbered up and just hard to find. They're they're down lower where you can't find them, and that that rainforest up there is just it can be impenetrable this it, everything grows sideways and and between the willows and the and the fir trees it's just nasty stuff but it's a fun hunt we, we spend about a week up there above timberline and you know eating the freeze dried and filtering the water and toughing it out and you know yes. there's always hope that you're going to get a big buck so that
1: sounds like my kind of hunt, hunt, hunt for sure um August first? Does that open in August first, or is it fifteenth? It does, oh, yeah. Yeah. No, it so opens August first. So, do you guys try to go early or late in August?
2: We we try to hunt August first, and okay. and the main reason is it it doesn't interfere with antelope or anything else or high country mule deer or whatever. Right. Um, last year we ended up going a little bit later because Bob had a a, fa- a wedding, family wedding, so we were up there on about the seventh or eighth. And then this year we're gonna start I think on the tenth because Bob's gonna be hunting tule elk in California so so it all kind of revolves around Bob um, <laughs> he and his wife Lisa they have a cabin on on Prince of Wales, and they're up there for a month and a half in May and early June hunting black bears with them being residents they can get two tags over the counter and then they have um you know they have friends who come up with that can get non resident tags and go hunting with them.
1: Does and, Bob Bob yeah, hunt with uh, traditional tackle?
2: He does not. No, he, he shoots a compound. Yeah, but to his credit, he's uh, he's about a forty yard guy. He he might shoot fifty, but he won't shoot. He won't take a long shot. And you know, he's he's not a not so much of a gadget guy, but he he shoots a newer bow.
0: But have you? Hunted? He tries to get close. I know Bob hunts some over there you know on kodiak but have you hunted them later like in november there on prince of wales
2: no i haven't i hunted a fognack. first time i hunted him i hunted a fognack around thanksgiving time and uh had a good hunt i shot a, a buck and a, and a doe and i wouldn't have shot a doe but it was the, the last hunt of the season and it was a semi-guided hunt we were staying in a lodge and uh they wanted meat for the lodge so and we had the tags you can shoot three so couple of us shot does there towards the end um good practice and and goes goes to a good cause but uh that ended up being a lot of uh it was a really fun hunt we did a lot of deer drives on the little peninsulas and islands that are off off of the main island um that you know tide goes up and down so much that they cross to little islands and there was i think five of us um and uh Man, it was a lot of fun. You'd, you'd set up at a pinch point, and they'd come running by, and you'd grunt and get them to stop. And you know, one guy shot one literally at three feet. Um, it was it was exciting. But sounds fun. But no, I've, I've never done the, I've never done Prince of Wales uh during the rut. Um, I grew up in Kansas, and and I bought my first piece of land when I was 19. When I I took over the family farm. And then I went on and did other things in life, but anyhow, I ended up adding to the property and, and I have decent amount of whitetail property in Kansas that I own. So pretty much all of November, I'm in Kansas. And, you know, you, you own that much property. You don't take 10 days off prime whitetail rut and go hunt Sitka
0: blacktails. No, you're hunting. That's hunting another hunting reason hunting I hunt them in August. In Kansas.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I shot a monster last year. I shot buck
1: of a lifetime i've had some great hunts
0: man you're getting after it jim
1: kansas is getting tougher for non-residents to come hunt that state isn't that correct it's getting to the point where it takes a, a a couple preference points or something
2: well not really um one point will draw just about anything and and most units um they don't have leftovers anymore, but, but it's like a 80 to 90% draw with zero points. So, so it's not guaranteed. Um, okay. but the problem is you just have so many people are applying now. They historically, um, well, when they first allowed non-residents, they were going to make it every other year because they didn't want the non-residents to come in and lease up all the ground. And, uh, the outfitters got that changed really quick. Um, and then they're, they're, their plan was if we had if we gave 600 tags this year in this unit and we had 650 apply, next year we'd give 650. and they just kept doing that year after year after year until there was just too many non-residents and too much money involved, too much leasing, um, you know resident hunters were losing places to hunt because they weren't willing to spend the money and and you know as a resident, they shouldn't have to. So it finally hit it. They finally capped it. They finally said, you know what, this is enough is enough. So uh, um, you know, it it seems like it's getting harder to draw. But the thing is, there's just so many people apply for it that there's there's more people that want it than there's tags available. So, uh, but there's still units that have leftovers. Uh, If you're in the right spot, you can get a tag every year. But I I was lucky since I grew up there, um, I bought a a, a lifetime hunting license before I moved away, and that allowed me to be a, I'm a resident for life, and that, when I first moved away, there was no non-resident hunting, so if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't have been able to hunt deer for about seven or eight years after I left, but that allows me to hunt deer as a resident every year, so my tags are over the counter.
0: Nice. All right, well, yeah, well. Get, we got to get the, the dirt on the Unit 1 hunt. How was Unit 1 in Arizona?
2: <laughs> you know, I, I had literally three of the best hunts of my entire life last year, and, and Unit 1 was fantastic. Um, they had the burn there back, I don't know, about six or eight years ago, and the population is up. Um, people seem to think trophy quality is down, but, man, I had uh, – I think I saw – five or six bulls in between three 360 and 385, wow. um, missed one of them. And my excuse was it was raining really hard and I, I hit my sleeve with my rain jacket. So, so that idea. works,
0: right? That happens. Yeah. Yeah. I'll buy it.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyhow, I, I, and, and so it's a, I think it was a 14 day hunt and I got there late because of my daughter's muzzleloader hunt. Um, she shot a nice bull in Colorado and then I got down there and, and, uh, Um, I was having three or four or five encounters every morning. And then again, every evening. And I don't, I don't bugle elk hardly at all. I hunt by myself, which makes it hard to call in elk. So I, I let them call me in and I was getting about five or six opportunities a day. I figured up at the end of the hunt, I hunted 10 days and, and I knew without a doubt, I was within bow range of 50 plus different bulls. And that that 10 day period.
0: Awesome. And
2: the, the, and my, my sights were set at about three forty, um, which, you know, I've, I've killed enough elk and it was such a opportunity. I thought that was fairly realistic and it was, I, sh- I should have killed a big bull. Um, so, you know, four out of five bulls that I got up on weren't big enough. And then that fifth one that I got up on, you know, he was big enough and I couldn't get a shot. Um, so it was just going from herd to herd to herd and, and just unbelievable hunt. And they, uh, they were up above or they were up in the burn and I hunted that a little bit at first, but it ended up being too open and I just couldn't make it work. Although I almost killed one the first morning. Um, you know, I actually come to full draw and it took a step forward and then I never got a shot. But anyhow, I ended up hunting for the most part in the cedars, kind of in the low country because, you can sneak so much better in the cedars. Um, the, the cover is lower to the ground and, um, and the elk would be out there bugling until nine o'clock in the morning. And then they'd kick off again at three in the afternoon. And, you know, I just get the wind right and go, go to the elk according to wind. And it was, it was a heck of a lot of fun. And then finally, uh, on the 10th day, I had two days left. Um, um, uh, that day and the next one. And I was, I was holding out for 340. I I was determined that I didn't have to kill one. Cause I knew I had the bison hunt. My daughter had killed an elk just the week before. So we had plenty of meat. And, and as I'm hiking up that, that uh, last morning I hunted, I, I thought, you know what? I, I kind of want to shoot an elk and the next herd bull I find that's over 300 that I get a shot at. I'm just going to take it. And if I wait till tomorrow, I'm probably not going to get anything. And, and I it, it was about the fourth bull I worked on that morning, and and uh, well, actually I'd had one uh, come in behind me while I was working on a bull, and I didn't hear him coming, and I I turned a little bit, and he's like ten yards looking at me, and he turned and ran and stopped at I think it was 28 or 30 yards, and I thought I had a wide open shot, and I concentrated and shot, and I didn't see the limb hanging down, just a little gnarly bare limb, and I uh, hit it and I thought I hit him in the foot. It just went whack, and he turned and ran, and it's like, oh, man, a uh, bad deflection, and uh, so I went up there and looked, and I, I hit a tree is what I did, and my arrow was stuck deep in a tree, and I'm trying to get my broadhead back, and I can hear a bull coming from below me, and he's getting closer and closer, and I got my Leatherman out, and I can't get the broadhead out of the tree, and, and I realized, man, this bull's about 50 yards away, and he's coming to me, and so, uh, I just unscrewed the arrow and stuck it in my quiver and knocked up an arrow and, and a cow walks by at 18 yards and there's a bull following her and he's a nice six point And I thought, well, there you go. And, uh, hit him and, and he turned and ran downhill about 20 yards and, and, um, you know, looking back up at the cow and he's just standing there and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, man, I thought that was a pretty good shot and, but he's not acting hurt. And the cow run off, and he looked up at her, and he starts walking by me again, and he just fell over dead right in front of me. So I hadn't got a complete pass through, but the fletch was inside the body, and you know he didn't travel 25 yards total. So perfect. It was it was just one of those hunts, just having so many opportunities at good bulls and being able to hunt real elk activity uh, where the population's high enough that you know, you're not just hunting one bull a day. You have multiple bulls to go after. Uh, it's just so much fun.
0: Yeah, in Arizona, man, it's just. I was hunting a, you know, not near as good a unit last year down there, but, and I've hunted a couple of those crappy units they they say down in Arizona. But man, the bulls just bugle like crazy down there. It's just incredible for. Guys that have never been, you got to go. And I couldn't imagine a Unit 1 or 9 or 10 or anything like that just from the the so-called crappy units I've hunted. And like you said, you don't have to call there. They just bugle. They're bugling like crazy. You just go chase them around. It's awesome.
2: Right. Right. First time I hunted Arizona, I drew Unit 7 West in 2011. And one morning I was within bow range of five bulls, which is, uh, you know, up to that time, the best hunt I'd ever had. And, you know, I had a 7 by 6 walk by at 7 yards, but he wasn't one of the big ones. And and, uh, then ended up going last year and having that not only every day, but sometimes twice a day. It's just out of this world. Just hard. You can't even explain it. It was so much fun. It's incredible.
0: Apply, apply, apply. Yep. Every once in a while you get lucky. Hopefully... Yeah, Hopefully I'll get
2: lucky. Yeah, but now the problem is I'm setting here. I can't even apply in Utah because I haven't hit the five-year waiting period. I just drew Arizona last year, and I, I'm i not close with points on Colorado or Wyoming. So, you know, going into this year, all I had was New Mexico, and my odds are about one in four of, of getting even an archery tag, and I've been really lucky and beat those odds year after year after year, and I, I just knew... Eventually, it's going to catch up with me, and I'm going to go a couple of years without. And this year, I didn't draw, so See, and
1: and we I don't had, have any
2: other elk. If we had, yeah, I don't have any other elk applications out right now, so I'm not going to hunt elk this year.
1: We had more uh, traditional only opportunities in the in the western states. We wouldn't have to wait two, three, seven, nine years to go hunting.
2: <laughs> well, that's that, that's a dream. That would be great. Uh, <laughs> my know. my brother lives in Kansas, and he drew probably the best tag in the state for new mexico this year um used to be the via caldera national preserve and i've hunted there three times as a resident um, but he drew the one non-resident tag so it's a 14 day hunt i'll get my elk fixed in. i'll help him with that hunt and and uh, since there's two of us maybe i'll do some calling but for the most part i'll set up on the hill and blow a bugle and get him to answer and then he'll sneak up on them and hope it's big enough one to kill so it'll be fun yeah
0: man he's a little more
2: hardcore than i am he shoots a longbow i just (laughs) i never could figure that out i have to i have to go with a high tech that 20 year old bighorn recurve that's that's about as primitive as i can get i'm not a
0: longbow guy either jim i I don't know what it is i just every once in a while every few shots i just wing one with a longbow i don't know what it is <laughs> so
1: I man i i've been shooting the hybrid longbows for a while but i just switched to shooting like a uh english you know hill style classic d-shaped longbow man i'm struggling shooting that with a quiver on when i take the bow mounted quiver off of it hat shoots like a dream it's just wow. trying to figure out what how i'm going to carry my arrows around the woods
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, the good thing about my brother is he's one of the best shots I've ever hunted with. And, uh, he just doesn't miss. If he finds something he wants to kill, he usually kills it. So. That's awesome.
1: He's an incredible shot. Where'd you say where, what state does he live in? Kansas?
2: He lives in Kansas.
1: Yeah. Okay.
2: Yeah. And his taggy Drew is in New Mexico. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you're old enough to remember, you know, back in the eighties, um, all the, bow hunting magazine guys they hunted what they called the Baca Ranch in central New Mexico and uh that family ended up selling that ranch to the federal government and for about ten years it was a, a separate preserve and you you'd buy lottery tickets to get a tag. And if you won the lottery then you'd applied for the the state and got a tag from the state. Um but if, if you uh, if you bought a thousand dollars worth of lottery tickets for the bow hunt, your odds of drawing were about one in three. So theoretically, you'd spend three thousand dollars over a three-year period and get a, a unbelievably good elk tag. And and I drew it um, I drew it three out of six years, and shot three bulls all over three hundred, and the biggest one was three sixty-three net. Awesome. So it was just a phenomenal hunt.
1: Gosh, awesome.
0: awesome! You are getting us fired up, Jim. <laughs> yeah.
1: you're, you're living right, Jim. You're living yeah, right, my you man. You
0: are living right, man. That is,
1: yeah. that's awesome.
0: Hey, hey well,
2: Jim, you, were you know you? It helps that I'm retired, and were I have you, time uh,
0: to
1: do it. Were you at PBS in in Portland, Oregon? No, I wasn't. Um, okay.
2: I used to belong to PBS uh, in the '80s. I went to the first two conventions. Um, one in ohio and one in colorado um then i hit some hard times uh when i i I quit the family farm couldn't make it anymore and moved to new mexico took a, a minimum wage job just to be well to be closer to elk and and mule deer and everything else just for the opportunities um so i dropped out of everything except the pope and young club and nra those are the two the two memberships I I never, ever dropped out of. And, uh, you know, NRA is another one of those those organizations where they do a lot of stuff that piss you off, but, you know, you just have to support them because they're all we have. Mm-hmm. And that's why I've always felt with Pope and Young Club, that you you have to stick it out through the, the thick and thin because that, that's what we have. And, uh, and uh, what I'm getting at is I dropped out of PBS at that time and I just never joined again.
1: Um, so to wrap this i
2: really enjoyed it while i was there
1: yeah definitely so to wrap this uh kind of make this come back to a full circle here um why don't you tell the listeners you know kind of what the pope and young club is up to in 2019 and um you know where guys can uh, find them if they don't know
2: Okay. Well, you know, it's easy to find. You just, you just search for Pope and Young and, you know, basically the only ones there and and our website is pope-young.org. And and most of what you need to know is on the website. Um, We do, we publish a quarterly magazine that's, uh, you know, it's about a hundred pages of all kinds of information that gives you the updates of what's going on uh, bow hunting wise. And then we also uh, highlight one of the 29 species in every issue and uh, there'll be about four or five articles on that one species everything from the biology to the the records to some hunt stories um you know maybe a research project so so this last one was black bear and we've actually just now gone through every species and now we're starting over again but that's that's kind of a cool way to learn about different animals um because we have access to some of the most knowledgeable people, knowledgeable people in the world on these different species that help us with our magazine. Um, but what's going on is uh, we work with uh, a lot of state and local organizations anytime they ask for help to try to fight any battle that comes up. And, you know, just because of the, the landscape today, for the most part, it's crossbow issues. And we, we compile everything we can from every different state. And if we find something that worked in New York, um, you know, we'll write it up and, and send it to, we just got done dealing with Kentucky and Montana and, uh, Montana was able to beat it back and, you know, mostly through the efforts of the, the two or three state organizations, but we sent as much information as we could. And apparently it helped because they, they thought what we did was a great help, um, same thing with the stupid, uh, air rifle that shoots an arrow. They call it the air bow, which is the spear gun. Um, you know, gathering information and, and sending it when needed, where needed. Um, but you know, it, it, uh, as far as the uh, outreach goes, we, we just recently decided to go to annual conventions. Historically, we've had a convention every other year and it was always based on our records program. Uh, we would invite. 120 of the the biggest animals taken in that two-year period to be um, highlighted at our convention and you know we've been lucky to where we get about a a little over 100 every every convention show up and uh, um, get people to come and see the trophies and we start on Wednesday night and end on Saturday night have a great time uh, great seminars Great programs, and uh, the greatest part about it is you're you're sitting down visiting with some of the best bow hunters in the world, and you know that's how I ended up hunting black-tailed deer in Alaska. That's how I ended up uh, the Coos deer hunt in Mexico. Um, you know, just about all of my most successful out-of-state hunts have been through a Pope and Young club connection. Um, but you know, we we decided to go to every year convention because. For one, our, our members want to meet. And, and the other thing is we just, we just need to get our message out more and we move it around every year. Um, we're going to be 2020, we're going to be in Virginia and the even year convention won't, won't have the, uh, every species, uh, represented, but we're probably going to, uh, make it a whitetail theme since it's in Virginia and we'll have. Probably, Hopefully, we'll have both the world record typical and non-typical whitetail there. And, of course, some some of the you know top 10 or 20 is going to be there as well. Um, and
0: didn't you yeah, guys, there's a lot of things going didn't on. Didn't you guys just put out a traditional record book?
2: You know, we're working on it right now. It okay. was supposed to come out this year, um, but we had some printing and, and editing issues that was going to make it so... It, it wasn't going to be ready for our convention in April, so we're we're putting it off for next year. It'll come out next year at the uh, Virginia convention.
0: Perfect. See that traditional record book would line up perfect with traditional seasons, Jim. <laughs> oh, I
2: know it. know what, it. That's the. This will be our third edition of the traditional book, and and uh, I, I I swear to you, the second edition traditional book, I look at it more than any record book I've ever had in my life. Because it's can a, you get those on the Pope comparison
0: website?
2: You can, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. They're uh, um, for sale, readily available. Um, you can order it any day. Um if if you're at any of the shows that we go to in the wintertime, you know, we we start going to well the first one's usually ATA, um, and where we go and try to sign up members and, and try to have some influence. And then, you know, all the way through Safari Club and state organizations, and uh, um, you know, I, I do the call writer traditional bow hunters. I have a booth there and sell books. So how, uh, we're, we're trying to trying to get in front of people. and how, and, how uh,
1: often is that book updated?
2: We we typically do six year cycles on all of our books. Okay. So our, our all time everything record book, our eighth edition, came out in two thousand seventeen. And okay. then our traditional book was going to be nineteen, but now it's going to be twenty. We're going to be a year off. Um there's there's just a lot of things going on with printed books right now. It's they're getting more difficult to do and then they're
1: not selling as well. So um I have it's, I have the two thousand. I have the 2011 book. Somebody gifted it to me. It's pretty cool.
2: So that'd be the traditional journey too.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I
2: love that book. I I look at it all the time.
1: It's good. I'll have to
0: check those out. Well, well, Jim, I mean, it sounds like you have a lifetime of awesome hunting stories to tell. So maybe we can uh, get you back on here. One of these days. Um, Thanks for coming on and having the cojones to get on here and, and talk about the issues that uh, are facing bow hunting and keeping up the fight and you know if any of you guys want to join Pope and Young they not only they have the website where you can get all that stuff like Jim said they have a Instagram page they have a podcast too with a lot of cool podcasts if you guys haven't listened they're the only guys that have Chuck Adams on there I listened to that one the other day awesome so yeah get on there they got some of those guys on there and and, uh, yeah, we'll hopefully uh, get you back on. Thanks for your time, Jim.
2: Okay, man. It's always a pleasure, and this, this has been great.
1: Thank you, Jim. We'd like to thank all our listeners once again. Don't forget to tell your friends about the podcast. Uh, unfortunately, we will not be at Compton's next month, but anyone that can make it should definitely be there. It's, uh, it's definitely one of those places that's special, Bering Springs, Michigan. Uh, we hope to go next year, but support Compton Traditional Bow Hunters. If you're not a member, become one. Don't forget to check us out on Instagram. Leave us a five star review wherever you listen to your podcasts and keep the wind in your face. Pick a spot and shoot straight.